Have you ever heard a story that came with tons of detail and a lot of things you knew nothing about and you got totally lost in all the weeds and couldn't figure out what any one part had to do with the rest? Have you ever had somebody tell you a story like that? Sometimes this happens with our kids, doesn't it? All God's people said, amen. Yeah, we're trying to get the lowdown on what happened at school, and the report comes back something like, well, Jimmy and Johnny were playing soccer, but Sarah was flirting with James, and Heather was upset at Mary. So we all decided to march to the secret spot, but then the second grader started arguing about whether James was faster than Joe, so Mrs. Harris had to come and separate them and gave all the third graders a detention, and I need to take a cheese stick for my lunch tomorrow. Does that make sense, Dad? Mom, does that make sense? On first glance, maybe you feel a little bit like that after reading this passage. Who are all these guys? <laughs> and, and why does it matter if they fell in a tar pit? And, and what exactly is going on here? Like, these are interesting tidbits, and I'm sure somebody can make it into a good movie. But why exactly should I care about this stuff? And what exactly happened, and what does it have to do with me? And I think if we zoom in on the individual pieces, perhaps too much, then that perspective makes sense. We say, what, what, what's going on here? I don't follow. But as we zoom out a little bit bigger, and take a wider angle lens, this all starts to fit together. In fact, there, because of this, this need to zoom out, one commentator said that Genesis 14 has received more scholarly attention than any other chapter in the entire Pentateuch. All of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this chapter has received more attention of people trying to figure out what do we do with this, how do we zoom out on it. So, so let's not pretend we're gonna say everything that can be said about this chapter. You're welcome. Uh, but that's why we've titled the sermon, Let's Circle the Wagons. Right? Let, let's, let's get around here, let's round up the loose ends, and let's see the main points and understand on the broader picture what's going on. It, it's a little bit like watching the new Top Gun Maverick movie, right? If you, you can see the little details in the movie, but if you zoom out and see the parts in relation to the whole and what was in the first one, there's way more significance. And if you only see the little details, you, you're not gonna catch the whole story, right? But you zoom out and you're like, oh, that's really awesome the way they wove that storyline in there. Maybe it's a little bit like that. All right, so, so we're gonna see three major points this morning. The first one is a bit more zoomed out on chapters 12, 13, 14, and then the second two are gonna zoom in a little bit more tightly onto chapter 14. All right, so the first point this morning is the promises stand. The promises stand. I told you this, this was a little bit more of a, of a zoomed out point where chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Genesis all form their own little literary unit of sorts. You read them all together, and it sort of comes to a, cult, uh, a conclusion here in chapter 14. So to understand how the promises stand is seen in Genesis 14. I actually want to take you back to Genesis 12. You can turn over just a page or two, or it may be on the screen as well, and see these promises first given uh, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Let's go back to Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Here's what it says. It's on the screen there. And I will make of you a great nation... And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
These are the promises that God makes to Abram. And in Genesis 14, what we're seeing is these promises starting to come to fruition. He's promised he'll be a great nation. And what happens in Genesis 14? He's conquering many nations. It's happening. Like what God said is coming to fulfillment. And he said that he would be a blessing. Now, we saw in Genesis 13, Abram is a blessing to Lot. He says, hey, Lot, you take the good land. You can have your choice of it. I'm gonna bless you and give you this choice. And then in Genesis 14, he continues to be a blessing to Lot because despite Lot's bad choices, he's now in Genesis 14 all the way into the city of Sodom, the wicked city. Abram goes and rescues him. He continues to be a blessing. What God has promised is if you're with Abram, you're going to be blessed. Abram, you will be a blessing. That's happening. He said that Abram's name will be great. And by the end of Genesis 14, in verses 17 and 18, you literally have kings lining up to come and meet Abram. Melchizedek is lining up there, the king of Sodom. They're, they're almost like in an autograph line. Like, we want to come meet this guy. His name has become great. We're told that Abram will, or those who bless Abram will be blessed. And this is an interesting, interesting one. Lot is running with a group he shouldn't be with, the kings of Sodom. They're wicked. They get defeated in the battle, right? These guys are not morally upright. They're not righteous at all. And yet because Lot is with them, Abram comes and rescues them, and they're blessed, and they come out of their captivity. They're even loosely associated with Abram. It says, anyone who blesses you or hangs out with your people, I'll bless them. You see that coming to fruition here. So all these promises made are actually coming to fulfillment here. They're, they're standing. But it's not as if these promises didn't have a threat made to them. Right? You see Genesis 12, 13, 14 is kind of its own unit, and you start to see this. Genesis chapter 12, there's a famine that threatens to keep the promises from coming to fulfillment. Genesis 13, there's a family fight between there's not enough land, and you know I'm feeling squeezed out. and it, it, It's almost in modern terms. It's like the kids are arguing about you know, get out of the bathroom, let me have my space there. That's kind of what Abram and Lot are fighting over. Like, there's this family fight that's threatening the promises to come true. There's lots of bad choices in 13 and 14 that are keeping the, or threats to the promises, rather. And then in chapter 14, there's this major international war. Five, five kings make a coalition, four kings co make a coalition. They're coming together. There's all these threats to God's promises. It seems like they're coming true, and yet over and over and over and over, you see this exact same theme. Nothing can stop the promises of God. Nothing can, ever. And it will always look like there's something that can stop his promises. And the message that you hopefully have heard week after week after week after week as we've walked through is nothing can stop the promises of God. And there's a whole bunch of things in our world that seem like certainties, aren't there? I mean, for one, Purdue basketball choking in the postseason seems like a certainty. <laughs> but growing inflation seems like a certainty. Death seems like a certainty. Taxes seem like a certainty. But friends, nothing in your life will ever be more certain than the promises of God. They can't be thwarted by famines. They can't be thwarted by family fights. They can't be threatened or taken away or thwarted by international wars. Nothing can stop them. And what these three little chapters, Genesis 12, 13, 14, show us 
something really significant, that on the basis of the faithfulness of God through the generations, you can trust his promises as a guarantee, as a certainty, as absolute bedrock of your life. Don't miss that. So I wonder that this morning, as we talk about this, if you would just zoom in on what are the promises of God that you need to cling to, that you need to refix your eyes on, that are absolute certainty. Is it, is it really true that he will never leave you or forsake you? Is it, is it really true that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Is it, is it really true that God is working all things for your good, all things, even when you can't see it at all. Nothing can stop his promises. And you may see all sorts of threats to them in your life. You may see your own failures. You may see family relationships that seem broken beyond repair. You may see the godless culture around us. But friend, don't miss the larger point from these three chapters that nothing can stop the promises of God. They will always stand. That's the first point. Let's, let's see, as we zoom in a little bit more here to chapter 14, a little bit more specifically, we'll see, secondly, the king conquers. Yes, the promises stand, but second, the king conquers. And what we're gonna see here of Abram is the picture of a conquering king. He's not explicitly called a king, but he acts like one. All right, so, so let's go back to Genesis 14 and, and just read the first three verses here. Starting in verse one. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Ketelaomer, king of Eom, which by the way, on Ketelaomer, I'm just gonna call him King Chet. My kind of rule of thumb on this is if, it, if in the kid's bulletin, he doesn't make it to the word search, then we don't have to say his full name. So we're just going to say King Chet going forward for him to make that a little bit easier on everyone. All right, we, we keep moving. And, and title, King of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, King of Sodom, Bersha, King of Gomorrah, Shinab, King of Adma, Shimeber, King of Zeboim, and the King of Bela, that is, Zoar. Now, now clearly, as I read those three verses, you think, Justin, how in the world are you going to pull something out of that? Well, first off, clearly, this is a historical account. Right, There's not like mythology of some sort. They're clearly testifying real kings, real places, real wars going on. But embedded in real history is a message about God's plan of redemption and salvation. And there's four kings from the east that defeat five kings from the west. And the clues in the passage are supposed to lead us to see that these four eastern kings, the victorious kings, are incredibly powerful. They would strike terror in your heart. So if we just move through those, the first one, Amraphel of Shinar. Shinar is the area where Babylon was at. Okay, clearly it's a, it's a powerful regime. And the last time we saw the king of Babylon or someone from Babylon show up, it was in chapter 10, where Nimrod is called a mighty hunter before the Lord. So they're seeing these generations. Oh, your grandpa did this. Whoa, he comes from good stock. Right? That's kind of the idea of like, whoa, this is, he's, he's a, a big deal. And then the next guy is Arioch of Eleazar. His name means lion-like. In fact, there's only one other Arioch listed in the whole Bible. He was the chief executioner in Babylon. So the picture of this, anybody, any Arioch is like, look out, this guy is a bad dude. And then you have King Chet. He's the next one listed. He's the leader of all these guys. Like, however, 
vicious they were, they weren't as vicious as King Chet. He's, he's the Genghis Khan of this group. And then the last guy is title of Goim. And Goim means nations. So it's, it's almost like this last guy is representative of a larger international coalition. So you put all these guys together, it's like, whoa, this is a serious force here. We gotta look out for these guys. They are really strong. And as if that wasn't clear enough, Moses goes a step further to clarify. Look back at verse five. Here's what Moses writes to make this point even more obvious. He says, in the 14th year, King Chet and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. Who are, who are the Rephaim? Because the, the Rephaim got defeated by these four kings that were super powerful. The Rephaim, Deuteronomy 20, tells us was the giants in the land. These were the Anakim. These were guys that are nine feet tall. In fact, Deuteronomy 3 says that the Rephaim had iron beds that were 14 feet long and six feet wide. Just for reference sake, that's a bed made out of iron that's double the length of a king-size bed. Like, these guys were enormous. You would not want to meet any of them ever for any reason unless they were helping you. And these four kings from the east trampled over the Rephaim. Most saying, like, look, these are some seriously bad dudes. Every single clue in the passage is drawing out the terror of this coalition. For us, it would almost be like you see satellite imagery that Russia and China have joined forces and they're now marching west from Ukraine on the rest of Europe. That's kind of the idea, like, oh boy, like, this is going to be really scary. And what comes next is we see that Abram is going to take them on with 318 dudes. What is going on here, right? It's like the local junior high team is going to take on the Golden State Warriors. Like, okay, this is a joke, right? It's like Canada decides they're going to invade the U.S. Like, okay, guys, seriously, like, what do you think you're doing here? This is not going to work out. But in verse 14, a skip down, we can read about what happens. Verse 14 of Genesis 14, we read, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Again, clearly a historical account. What you find in the scriptures is really what happened. You can count on it. You can trust it. And the pursuit that they make with their 318 guys is over 100 miles by foot. That would be like us going in pursuit by foot almost to Louisville. Like that is a serious chase that's happening there. Now, Abram divides his army in the night he makes wise steps. He makes, he's very tactically prudent. He knows what's a good plan here. And yet it's God who gives the victory. You see both of those going together. Abram's called be wise, divide, but also recognize God is the one who's going to give the victory. And there is a miraculous victory that's given that frees these captives, namely the five kings from the west, including his kinsman Lot. And what this kicks off is a theme throughout the whole Old Testament and into the New Testament, a theme of the entire Bible of a miraculous and improbable delivery of captives. We'll see it over and over and over. Maybe this story reminds you a bit of Judges 6, 7, and 8, where Gideon has a crew of 300 guys, and they divide in the night, 
and God gives a improbable victory, a miraculous victory over the Midianites and the captives are delivered and freed. Or 1 Samuel 30, you think of David, he takes 400 guys and the, 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 uh, the city of Ziklag has been captured and David takes his group of 400, they conquer it miraculously and all the captives are released. You see, this is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. It will continue into the New Testament and we'll see some, some serious pictures towards Jesus in just a moment here. But I think it's important that we pause before we get ahead of ourselves into the New Testament and say, why is Abram doing this? Why is he taking his little militia of 320 guys and chasing these people down? Right? It's not because he's bored and has nothing to do. He just needs a fight. You think about where his life is at right now. If he has a militia of 320 guys, like his entire group is likely over 1,000. Like it's a city within a city that he's kind of managing and leading here. He's got plenty to do. But what's the key? He sees his kinsman lot. That word kinsman shows up twice in Genesis 14. It's, it's highlighting, no, you're one of my people. And so I'm going to get you. And you're in captivity and Lot, you've been making bad decisions. We walked through all of that last week, right? He, he went to the east when he shouldn't have. He was moving towards Sodom by Genesis 14. He's living in Sodom. And Abram says, no, no, no. It's not on the basis of your good decisions I'm gonna go get you. It's on the basis of I'm gonna choose to love you at risk to myself, and I'm gonna go get you Lot. I'm gonna put myself at risk for you I'm gonna go and I'm gonna rescue you and I'm gonna bring you out of that kingdom and bring you into to my kingdom, my, my city here. And in this way, here's what we see. We see Abram pointing ahead to a true and better king who is the, actually the ruler of the entire world, not of merely a thousand people. Now, Abram points ahead to Jesus who would see his people in captivity to sin because of their own foolish decisions, just like Lot was in captivity because of his own foolish decisions. And this true, this better king, Jesus, he wouldn't only put himself at great risk, no, he'd actually lose his life, not merely risk it so that he could redeem his people from captivity, to free them, to bring them out of that city and into a better city. This is what Abram is telling us. Look, this is, this is going to come true in a much bigger and better way that you can always count on. Here's how Colossians 1 verse 13 would describe what Jesus says. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what all of this is pointing ahead to. It's not just a set of Old Testament stories of, of Abram and Gideon and David. It's like, no, it's, there's a, a greater redemption and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Friends, the greatest enemy that we will ever face in our lives is this domain of darkness that Colossians 1 speaks about. It's the battle against the flesh in our own souls. This domain of darkness includes sin and death and hell and Satan. These are our great enemies. Yes, there are other lesser enemies, but these are the great enemies. And Jesus offers us deliverance from all of them. And as a Christian, I think sometimes we get lost here and we fight for the victory instead of from the victory. Where it's like, man, my performance is what determines the victory. Here's, and Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I am the king who conquers. I've already conquered. And so when Satan comes at us with his temptations, bring our past failures, bring the shame trying to lead us astray, you could say, no, Satan, get out of here. 
I'm in Jesus' kingdom, and he has conquered you and sin and hell and death and all of it, and I'm part of his kingdom, and so on the basis of his victory, I'm saying, get out of here. You can say that to him. It's a good thing to say, to engage, not on the basis of how strong you feel today, but on how strong you know Jesus is. And there's some of you as well here who aren't fighting that battle as a Christian because you're not yet a Christian. You don't know that freedom, that victory that is in Christ. And let me just say this message as simply as I possibly can. Here's the message of Jesus conquering. He made you to be in a relationship with him. And each of us has turned and rebelled and gone our own way. And Jesus came to the earth to pay the penalty for our rebellion by dying on the cross. And then three days later rose from the dead to conquer death and everything that came with it, to conquer sin and hell and Satan, to give the victory, to win it and offer it, say, come be part of my kingdom. Wait, today, if you've never believed that, today can be the day that you are transferred out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You just ask him to forgive you of your sin. Repent, turn to him, follow him, say, I want to be part of your kingdom, Jesus. And he will forgive you and will bring you into his family. What a glorious thing that would be. If you haven't done that, I cannot say it strongly enough, make today the day of your salvation. Ask Jesus to forgive you. The king conquers. First point, the promises stand. Second point, we see this king who conquers, Abram pointing ahead to King Jesus. Third and final point this morning, the priest blesses. The priest blesses. The priest referenced here is Melchizedek. He's one of the more confusing characters in the Bible at times. Uh, So we'll go down and we're going to look at who is this priest Melchizedek. Let's look at verse 17 uh, as the introduction. We'll just kind of walk through this. Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of King Chet and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So who is this Melchizedek character? He sort of shows up out of nowhere, and then he disappears. In fact, he only is referenced one other time in the whole Old Testament. Some have taken that to mean he was a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't think that's what was actually going on here. I think Melchizedek is a real historical person, a real king over a real city called Salem, but he does point ahead to Jesus in significant ways. And then the New Testament writings inform us of this. They they tell us that Melchizedek is pointing forward to Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we'll get there in a second, the New Testament we see writes in a very specific way to say that there's no mention of Melchizedek's parents or of his genealogy, or of his life, or of his death. It's a strange entrance and exit. In a sense, it's similar to Jesus showed up unexpectedly and left unexpectedly, and yet Melchizedek and Jesus had a similar role. 
That's the direct connection that we'll see in the New Testament. Hebrews 7 is where we see it. So look at the screen here and see how uh, the writer of Hebrews explains this connection. It's not just my, my idea on this. Writing of Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 2. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So so Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness, pointing ahead to Christ. And he's the king of a city called Salem, which means peace. You hear that, if you're familiar at all with Hebrew, you've heard the term shalom, Salem, shalom, very close, the king of peace. He's a a king, and he's a priest. And Hebrews 7 is not saying literally that Melchizedek had no no father, no mother, no genealogy. He was never born, never died. No, it's saying there's no record of that as a way of pointing ahead to Christ with a uh, supernatural appearance and exit. And what the rest of the Bible focuses on is actually Melchizedek's priesthood, the priesthood that he focuses in on. There's one particular passage in the Old Testament that's quoted more than any other passage in the New Testament. Your trivia mind is now rolling. What might that be? Perhaps you're thinking Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. That's not the one quoted more often than any other. Maybe Psalm 23, famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. No, that's not it. The most quoted passage in the Old Testament into the New Testament is actually Psalm 110, Likely not what most of us were guessing, but let's put it on the screen and see what it says. Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's actually a messianic prophet saying, Jesus, you will rule forever as a priest somewhat similar to Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Well, he's a king, and he's a priest. He's greater than Abraham, and he points ahead to Jesus. It's like a a fourfold, who's Melchizedek? He's a king, he's a priest, he's greater than Abram, he points ahead to Jesus. So Melchizedek shows up, and he has this dialogue with Abram. And what is this thing supposed to tell us? What does it mean? Well, if you think of Abram in the Hebrew Bible, and for the Israelite people, Abram is like the top of the food chain. Like, is there anybody greater than Abram? No, like, he's the, 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 the great patriarch. He begins this people of God. God makes the special promises to him, miraculously gives a son. The seed tracks back to him. Like, Abram is kind of the top of the food chain. And yet, somehow, Melchizedek is even greater than Abram. Because as soon as Melchizedek shows up, Abram says, you're greater than me, and gives an offering. And the rest of the Bible is saying, not only is Melchizedek greater than Abram, but actually Jesus is even greater than either of them. So for the original audience, they're saying, wow, if I could be like Abram. So much faith, walked with God. Maybe bordered on idolatry or worship of him. And they're saying, no, 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 Melchizedek is greater, and Jesus is even greater, don't get mixed up here on where our priorities are. And Abram immediately recognizes this greatness. As, as I said, he, he gives an offering right away. And, and, and this offering is actually the origin 
of what Christians throughout the centuries have called the tithe, the 10%. That someone greater than you is there. For us, we're saying, wow, God, you are so much greater than us. And so Abram freely and generously gives of an offering. It's not a binding command that we must give 10%. Right? For some people, it's like, well, less than 10% is a generous free gift. And for others, I can give generously and freely and give 30, 40, 50%. Right? The point is not the number. It's a generous and a free gift recognizing, God, you are so much greater than me. And yet, as the greater one showing up, Melchizedek is not making demands on Abram. He doesn't come doing that. No, he actually comes and brings a blessing. Look, look at verse 19 of Genesis 14. We read, on the lips of Melchizedek, blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He doesn't show up demanding things of him. He comes up bringing a blessing. And what a clear contrast this is with the king of Sodom. You look at verse 21. What are the, what are the first words that king Sodom sa- the king of Sodom says? Give me. I'm going to make demands of you. And it's so fascinating to think about that because the king of Sodom, on what basis is he saying, Abram, give this to me? He was just defeated before Abram came and rescued him. Right? He has no claim on any of this stuff. And yet he says, okay, Abram, like, we're sort of co-equal here. Let's go have these. And you step back for a second. You're like, dude, you were just in captivity under these kings. You have no, like, you have no negotiating power here. And yet he still says, give, give, give. And there's a contrast between two kingdoms being set up. Here's this Melchizedek who represents the kingdom of God. He's a priest of God saying, I'm gonna come and bring you a blessing. And there's the kingdom of this world saying, give, give me more, give me more. I'm not really worthy of you giving me more, but I'm still gonna demand it from you. But don't we see this in our, in our world today where the world is demanding our affections, it's demanding our energy, saying, give me this, I'm worthy of this. We get around, and it's real easy, especially this time of year, to talk about whether, you know, whatever you like to talk about, the NFL season coming up, and you can just talk forever about training camp and who's winning this position battle or how this team is going to do, back-to-school sales at Kohl's. You're going to use your Kohl's cash by this point. Does anybody have a 30% off for me? Like, like there's so many things this world offers. says, give me your affection. Give me your energy. This is a worthwhile pursuit. It's not wrong to shop at Kohl's or to like the NFL. I'm not saying either of those things. But what I am saying is it's so easy for that to capture our affection and our energy. And it's so difficult for us in simple conversation to say, could you tell me how you've seen God at work this week? Could you testify to his grace? Because I want to celebrate what he's done. I want to see the blessings he's bringing. Can you tell me how you saw somebody serve someone else this week? Can that be on the front burner for us here? And just like the king of Sodom says, give, so our world is calling us, give, 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 with no claim over your life, yet still demanding. So what does Abram rightly say? He says, no, I'm not gonna give that to you. Because if, if we go have these and I keep a little bit, then you're gonna say, I made Abram rich, and I know that everything comes from God. 
It's all his, and I just get to steward it. I get to be entrusted with some of it, but it doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to you. You have no claim over me, king of Sodom. It's a good message for us to to hear, to be able to say, no, it's God's, not yours. Here's the interesting thing about this whole kind of story coming together. We saw the king who conquers. Kings are known for their powerful rule, aren't they? That's what a good king does. He rules powerfully. But Melchizedek, we're told, is a priest and a king. And Jesus, we're told, is a priest and a king. And the major significance is in this this priesthood. That's actually what Psalm 110 brought out. So what would priests do? How are we supposed to see his priesthood more specifically than his kinghood or kingliness? Well, what priests would do, in a sense, is they would sort of pave the path to come before the king. Yes, the king rules mightily, but how do you get access to him? God rules mightily. In the, in the Old Testament sense, the priest would offer sacrifices so you could enter into the presence of God. And to use a, a really silly example, let me think about it this way. Many of you know that a few weeks ago at the brickyard, Pastor Casey gave the beginning invocation. Right? And he got some extra tickets, so I got to go with him, and, uh, and we were there, we had a great time, and I met Jeff Gordon. It was pretty cool. He's a really, really short dude. <laughs> but because of Casey sort of paving the way, he was a priest of sorts, I got to meet Pittsburgh's finest, <laughs> the king of the brickyard, Jeff Gordon. He made a way that I could have access to him by having those tickets made available to me. But the problem with any earthly priest sort of thing is the ticket expires and it's only good for that one day, that one point in time. And if I'd like to get to meet Jeff again, I gotta find somebody else who's as good of a prayer as Pastor Casey to get me into the brickyard and go meet him again. It's an over and over and over again sort of deal. Well, that's kind of how the Old Testament priestly system worked. Yes, the priest offers a sacrifice for my sin today and it brings me into the presence of God. I can not be condemned. But what about tomorrow's sin? And the day after, and the day after. I need new tickets to the brickyard, per se. He says, no, no, Jesus is a better king than that and a better priest than that because he comes and he offers a sacrifice that's an eternal sacrifice. He continues forever so that once he has offered himself as the sacrifice, not merely a goat as a sacrifice, I can enter into God's presence forever without fear of condemnation. Right? Melchizedek brings God's blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. But Jesus brings far more than merely God's blessing. He brings you into God's very presence to bring your your pain, your difficulty, your joys, the things you're celebrating, all of it you bring to him. What a better priest he is, where you have access to the king who conquers, whose promises will always stand. So let's circle the wagons a bit here. That's the title of the sermon and kind of land the plane, if you will. How does Genesis 14 bring us to worship? What does it look like? And for each of us, it may be a little bit different. What your word that you need to hear this morning and latch on to and really zone in on may be a little different. But the promises of God do stand forever. They will never fail. So maybe this morning, as we 
as we start to wrap it up, you, what you need to do is recognize right now, Justin, my circumstances look bigger than the promises of God, and I need to fix my eyes on one particular promise. And I need to never let go of it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think about the king who conquers, and as a Christian, you say, Justin, I need to fight from the victory instead of fighting for the victory, recognizing that Jesus has already won. That's what I need to do. Maybe you're not a Christian. You say, man, I do see that Jesus did come to the earth as the king, live the perfect life, die for my sins, rise from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell and Satan, and I need to confess that he is Lord and give my life to follow him. Maybe that's your takeaway. Or maybe you gotta think on this priest who blesses, recognizing you have access to the throne of the living God forever on one who's greater than Abram, greater than Melchizedek, the son of God himself. And that you can bring everything to him. Your joys, your pain, your sorrows, your celebrations, the mundane, the mediocre, and everything that is untouched by that list. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always walk with you. And there is a blessing there beyond anything else this world can offer. Let's pray.